Welcome to the Learn, Grow, Teach, Parent Podcast. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Today in the studio, I have Mr. Andrew Disney. He's an old friend of mine. Uh, we've known each other for a very long time. He has a fascinating life, and his dedication to education is absolutely stunning. He's really one of the uh, innovative type of teachers that this podcast is dedicated to, and uh, he is an excellent man as well. Welcome to the podcast. Andy, how you doing? Doing great. Thank you, Mark. It's great seeing you. Great seeing you too. Hey, if you have a moment, let's tell our listeners a little bit about your story, like how you got, you know, where you're at now and how you got to, to, to your current status. Sure. I'm, I'm currently uh, working at Winter Park High School in uh, Winter Park, Florida, in Orlando, Eastern Orlando. <clears throat> Winter Park is the, uh, well, Orange County is the eighth largest dis school district in the country. And uh, Winter Park High School is arguably the premier high school, public high school in the state of Florida. I, I could make that argument with anyone. We, uh, we have about 3,500 students. Uh, we have, uh, we administer uh, approximately 3,000 AP tests a year. We have 120 IB diploma graduates. Um, it, 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 athletically, the, the arts are, uh, we just do amazing things there. And, and I'm really pleased to be part of that educational community. Let me ask you a question. I mean, you are in the thick of things right now. This is, this is the launch pad from which young minds are getting either into a career, into college, and uh, it sounds like you're handling a very, very large group of, of students. Do you find that the process of helping kids develop through these years, these, has it become something different than it was that, not just what you remember, but is it different than how it's been in even the recent past? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's certainly different from the time you and I went through school uh, significantly. Um, you know, we're Orange County, as large as it is, we are a one to one device district, which is a, an amazing accomplishment in and of itself. And that started in 2015. Um, but yeah, you know, we have we have a wall of, of scholars in um, at Winter Park High School. And you can you walk by and you see those uh, former students pictures and, and the universities that they are attending now. It is it's staggering. But I, I think that that footprint of preparation, that that unique uh, educational footprint that they're developing, really starts now in the middle school. You're starting to earn college, or excuse me, high school credit in middle schools. You're starting to earn college credit at the ninth grade level. Uh, you're starting to to develop that overall academic resume that allows you access into some of these elite. Uh, institutions. I, I think it, it has certainly changed. It is much more diligent. It is much more focused. Um, and and I, I think similarly for those students that were preparing so, to go into vocational fields and to go into, uh, you know, trade schools and those sort of things. I, I think that that preparation is always there. And I think the other thing we're doing better at is is giving those, giving our, our students options or, or various paths that can take to ensure success. And success doesn't always mean going to a four-year institution. Uh, success 
from my perspective, is an individual who finds their purpose and is contributing to his or her community. That's a great point. I mean, I, I, I can see that if, if that's your focus, then you are 100% going to uh, attack the problem from a different angle. You're going to look at the whole person. You're going to look yeah. at the, the child. The child is going to be uh, better suited for the world if the end state goal is to create a, a better uh, purposeful life for them. Hmm. You know, you have a unique, a very unique philosophy. Uh, but let me ask you, let's backtrack a little bit. How, how did you get into education? What's your story? Where did you start out and how did you get into it? Um, you know, growing up in Miami, Florida, youngest of four, uh, a real strong nuclear family, uh, very supportive. And, and being the youngest child, I think, impacts uh, one's matriculation through childhood, for better or for worse. Um, but, you know, I, I was reminded last night, uh, I'm at my parents' house today, my, I attended kindergarten for four years. My grandmother was one of my teachers. My mom was one of my teachers. Um, I, so I, I think education, you know, the, the way uh, my parents raised us, I think education's always been not only emphasized, but, but practiced uh, on a regular basis. Um, none, no one in my family... Uh, graduated from college before I did, ironically. Mm. Uh, but that was kind of always the goal, you know, I think to get to that point. Um, I, you know, my family has, has always been upstanding members of the community and stalwarts of the greater good. And so I, I think, I think, I think some of those, those things, uh, Although in my youth, I kind of rebelled against some of those things. I think, I think you know, you go back to uh, what it says in Proverbs, train them the way to go when you're young and when they're adults, they return to it. Yeah, there's real wisdom to that. And I had the pleasure of knowing you when you were younger. And I can attest to the strength <laughs> of your family, the conviction that uh, both your parents had. I mean, definitely having that guidance gave you a... Uh, sort of a foundational support that you could lean back on in tough times. So I can remember you're, you are an exceptionally mentally tough person. Hmm. And a lot, a lot of, uh, of, of your life, uh, you have the ability to calmly and coolly take controversy for what it was and, you know, simply do what you needed to do to get beyond that. Um, I don't think you had that to the same level uh, in your forties than you did when I, when, you know, when we were kids, mm. I, I do think that something affected you along that way. What happened in your life that gave you such, such strength, such fortitude? I, I think, I think my, my varied experiences have certainly brought on, um, a different perspective, a broader perspective. Uh, I think going off to college in the Midwest, going all the way to South Dakota to play football and, and experience college on my own was it, was it, Tremendous growing experience. Um, I, I worked at several different uh, colleges and universities in the Midwest as a football coach. I think all of those things certainly contributed uh, to a more more worldly view um, and and certainly independence. And then you know going, uh, I, I moved to Japan in 1990 and I spent six years there. And 
I think the isolation was difficult, being away from English-speaking people, being away from a Western culture. Um, but but I think it was incredibly a, a time of growth as well, and a time to to see America from a distance, uh, to live to live that experience as a minority in a uh, in a really homogenous society. I think all of those things really allow allow me. A, a, you know, the, the quintessential white man to come back to America with, with a sense that, uh, you know, th- I understand the, the plight. I understand the struggles of assimilating into a different culture. Exactly. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but let me back up a second because you're underplaying this a little bit. Hmm. You know, the Japanese are very isolated. And this is a, a, even today, still very isolated. To be accepted into Japanese culture is in and of itself a major accomplishment. Yeah. I mean, they have a word for uh, foreigners, uh, gaijin, isn't that the gaijin. word? That, yeah, yeah. Gaijin. And, yeah. and, and that, you know, they're talking about xenophobia. They're mm. respectful. But right. you got you to gotta do a lot of things to crack in. How difficult was it for you to learn the language, learn mm. the culture, and then learn and earn the respect of, of these people. Well, it, you know, you talk about learning the language and learning the culture. Certainly I have a long way to go, but, but I was able to, I, I was able to uh, quickly adapt through great uh, instruction from my, uh, from the team that, that brought me to Japan, the, the, the people around me, I, I still have great friends there. In fact, uh, I am planning my uh, return to Japan in 2025 to, to reunite it via, 35 years since I, I first went to Japan. Um, yeah, I mean, it, I, I think with any growth, there's going to be immense failures. And I had my share of failures. Uh, there's going to be immense challenges. And, um, and you know, there's got to be a sense of um, you got you to have help to get through that. And I think I had amazing help. But you know, the Japanese culture is extremely rich. It is extremely rigid. It is uh, extremely gratifying to be part of it and, and to kind of be on the inside of it. But, um, yeah, and I wouldn't ch- change that experience for the world, uh, really. I, but I, I, I was never really on the, in the inner circle, as it were. I, I, I felt more at times like um, a prop. Uh, you know the blonde hair, the blue eyes, the the posture of an American football coach. I fit it. Uh, I you know I, I I was their Rudy. You know, and so um, it, it was a great experience, and and there was a lot of love. And 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 the Japanese express affection differently than we do. The Japanese don't have our uh, you know our Puritan values like we do in America. There there's there's, there's it, it's just a whole different mindset, and uh, I had to be open to learning that mindset and that approach to problem solving, that approach to management, uh, the approach to interpersonal relationships. Um, in fact, I'm using my hands right now talking, Mark, as, as I'm talking to you, and I would never do that in Japan because that would be offensive. <laughs> Unbelievable that you, look, you went as a teacher, you were hired in to come in as a teacher, essentially, you're teaching them. But immediately you also take on the role of being a student because you're learning all these difficult things, you know, the, the culture, the, the language, the ability to communicate. And I often tell all the, the kids that I work with, and especially my children, I've always told them, 
that in your life you need to be a master at something that you dedicated a lot of time and energy to, that you now are, you're definitely an expert and you're good at it. You need to be something that you are uh, learning, you're not quite mastering, and uh, where you have competition that drives you to become better. And then you also have to be willing to be a newbie at stuff and to fail and fall flat on your face and, and be horrible at it. And if you can successfully fill these roles as you go on in life, then you become more and more comfortable with both failure and success. You see them differently. It doesn't go to your head. And that's really something about you, Andy, is that you have accomplished a lot, but it doesn't go to your head because it go, your heart is enormous. You really want to help these kids, don't you? I mean, you really want to help make yeah, better definitely. people, don't you? It's my, you know, it, it is my mission. I mean, it, it, uh, things changed, you know, 2001, 9-11 to me changed everything. I was living in Tokyo at the time. Um, I, I just could not believe in the, in the 20th century that we would have such inability to have civil dialogue and, and to be able to talk through things. Uh, you know, it, it still irks me that, life goes on. Um, meanwhile, somewhere on the globe, we have two countries at war right now, and there's a loss of life on a daily basis. And, and it, it just seems to be ridiculous in, in many ways. So, um, you know, the pen is mightier than the sword. I believe that. And, and I believe words are, are stronger than any sort of weaponry. Uh, so, I'm a person who believes in language. I'm a person who believes in culture. I'm a, I'm a person who believes in uh, equality for all. And, and, and until we get to that point, I'm going to continue on my mission. And, and so what I really do at, at Winter Park High School more than anything is I focus on the skills of literacy. I, want, I, I, I really feel like a lot of the issues we have today is because of our reliance on uh, sound bites on videos on someone else's perspective who is telling us how to feel about a situation instead of looking at source documents, looking at what has actually happened, being able to discern uh, facts versus someone else's reality. Yeah, this is a great point. I mean, I was talking to someone just the other day, and it's important to teach children how to, how to think critically. Obviously, you want them to be able to come to their own thoughts about things, but there's a danger if there isn't a foundation there, a morality that drives them, because suddenly what you have is, uh, I, I think you have a little bit of the confusion of what's going on today, which is it's easier to shut down a conversation than it is to have one. And disagreeing with people is not uh, an invalidation of yourself, it's merely an opportunity to open up and, and learn more. So I can see where your approach through literature and through the understanding of other people's words uh, does a, a better job of helping young people navigate how to find their own voice, how to find their own words. It's a difficult, difficult thing. I mean, you talked about the success that your school has with academics. Um, do you find that the student population at the school has to grow into that 
Or do they come to you fully formed because of your own reputation and now the community? It's Has it spread out to the community, the kids you get? Are they better quality kids than you expect? I, you know, I, I think it's a combination of both. I, I think uh, culture in an in a, in a educational setting is so important. And culture is something that is really developed over time. And it's not something that you can go to a workshop and say, we're going to implement this culture now at our school. You know, we have that kind of that daily climate, but the culture overall is something that has, that is a legacy that kind of uh, propels us uh, to move forward in a particular direction. But, you know, we have, you know, we, we have a, a large percentage, almost 50% of our population is free and reduced lunch. So we do have, we do have those the, the students who are social economically struggling, but they come into an academic setting where the expectations have been established and, and they have been uh, maintained over for years. And, and uh, I think that motivates those students who are not necessarily speaking that academic language at home or don't have the siblings to follow that path for. They're the trailblazers. And, and those are the kids who have different strengths and they have different abilities. Uh, the, the challenge is to get them to uh, make it through the path that has been set for them. Uh, and, and there are multiple paths and, and we have so many uh, unique and, and uh, noble programs to allow them to find their niche. You know, you talked about young people uh, trying to find their place in life. And, and I think high school is an, an amazing time for students to try different things, to find out what their passion is, what their, where their strengths lie, where they can really apply themselves. Um, you know, I, I liked, I'm, I'm working with, with six different classes right now and, and they're all ELA classes. But I, when I talk to them, I, I tell them that this is a thinking class. This is a reading class. This is a writing class. This is a communication class. And, and we have got to master that those tools of communication. We have, we have to be experts at decoding the, 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 the text, the encrypted text. And then we have to encode it in order to, uh, in order to organize our own thoughts and, and be able to know how to reflect on that information and, and respond to it. That's, that's a really great curriculum. It's not normal. Uh, you see a lot of, uh, I would say, public schools where the issues don't get the teacher to that point where they can really do this in the classroom. Hmm. There's, there's a lot of external pressures that come with that. And there's a lot of pressure for the kids as well. I mean, I find that hmm. many, many students that I talk to are, they have trouble dealing with stress. It, stress is a is it, I I happen to believe that stress is a good thing. It it, hmm. it forces you to be creative. It also lets you understand that you have an obstacle, and then now the real lesson is how do you go through that obstacle? Hmm. How do you work past it? Because in that comes all the good things in life that people want. But there are there's a series of busy work that confuses the issue because you and I are talking about deep subjects now. But in the nitty gritty of how to get through school, I find there's a lot of homework that is unnecessary. I find there's a lot of busy work. How do you guys or how do you personally combat that and, and bring the 
the, the good golden juice that you want them to drink immediately and sustain that in the classroom? Well, I'll tell you right off, I don't assign homework as a teacher. There is no homework. Um, I, I'm realistic about that. I, I would encourage them to read. Uh, they certainly rereading rich literature rewards the reader, uh, but or or read something of their choice. I, I'm, I'm a strong proponent of that, but but I don't enforce that in any way. Um, we we've been in Orange County. We've had seven days of school, um, and and I can tell you my initial curriculum. You know, day one we're going to go over the syllabus. We're going to talk about behavior expectations. We're going to talk about roads to success. Day two, we did some digital citizenship thing. Uh, day three, we looked at language, at, at really the, the foundations of language for, from, from the ninth grade standpoint, which is what are the parts of speech? What are the types of sentences? How do we classify sentences? What is the syntax? Um, you know, I believe in the science of reading as well. I don't believe in whole reading or that whole reading approach that we just throw it at them, something's going to stick. Um, I, I really believe in breaking it down to its smallest units. And then we got into, uh, you know, the ninth grade class, we, we read uh, Judith Ortiz Kofer, and, and it was a, a story about a 16-year-old boy who just got out of juvie and, and is struggling with his relationship with his father. And, and that story, when we got through analyzing it for meanings of layer and literary elements and those sort of things, I gave them one question. And the question was this, should a young person deserve, does a young person deserve a chance at redemption? And, and I gave them 15 minutes to write, to think and write. And so what, you know, we want to learn about the human condition. And, and we, want our, we want our kids to think deeper about that human condition and, and learn from the literature so that they are, have the emotional intelligence to go out into the world and deal with hardships, to deal with uh, difficulties. But what they learned from that story is that everyone has a backstory. Everyone has a reason why some of those behaviors are the way they are today. And, and, and I think that, that's such an important question to get to a student. What's your story? Where are you coming from? Absolutely. I mean, what you're, you're telling me you're a week into school and you've already cracked their heads open and poured into that morality, uh, tolerance, uh, a deeper pursuit of a deeper meaning. All of that happened right there, right in the beginning. And, and the learning, uh, I mean, this my, that, it's a gold standard. It really is. I, I, I take my hat off to you because in my teaching, when I teach English to kids, and I've taught from, you know, young to eighth grade, primarily, you know, the high schoolers are, are not, I don't get there to that ninth grade level. But I always begin with classics. And I, I'm, I'm a fan of classical literature and a classical education. The way I look at it is when a student, a new student is being exposed to something, there's some Greek, there's some Roman, there's someone in antiquity that struggled with that for the first time. Mm. And I like to introduce a lot of it through that type of storytelling. And then, and then that type of reading can, can, can hold on to, they, they can hold on to the original story of this Greek and say, well, I'm going to get through it. I guess to me, getting past the, the difficult parts 
is where the learning happens. Hmm. Uh, how do well, you how do you do that, do that so successfully? I I, I think you. First of all, I, I have goals that I want to get my kids to, and I want to work with them where they are, and get them to that goal that that goal of uh, of of a growth mindset, that growth of the importance of of language as a uh, as that conduit to our culture, the goal of 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 being a you know being able to communicate in in many different forms and and be able to communicate thoroughly um you know we the 10th grade group i'm working with right now we read uh, a chapter out of persepolis to start the year a graphic novel 1980 i ran um and you know we we really got into that generational gap that kind of that universal theme that you know teenagers and adults don't always see eye to eye and there's not that open channel of communication and and that we need to be sensitive to that and understand the the changes that are going on um and and dealing with the backdrop of war and 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 how that coming of age of of an individual uh and so i think i think more self-awareness is critical for students to be to be conscious of uh those self-management skills uh you know, kind of, we, we used to refer to these as soft skills, but these are integral skills. These are skills that allow them to, to really uh, have that self-discipline to say, you know, the learning goal is set here. How do I get to that point? And my path might be very different than everyone else's, and that's okay. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer in paper and pencil. I, I don't believe that we have the same uh, connection with the keyboard. And, and, and the screen. And I think when we, when we scratch out words and we write a different word and we put an arrow and insert it somewhere else and we work through that drafting process of writing and organizing our thoughts, I, I, I think it's so rewarding and, and so uh, enriching for the student. And, but again, everyone is taking kind of their own path, their own course. And, and I, I learned very quickly in, watching students, how I need to approach that student and what I need to connect to for a background of that student. One of the first things I do with, with students is just try to gain, you know, get some idea of where they came from, where they want to go and, uh, and, and be able to advise them from there. I mean, you sound almost like a mentor. You sound like a, like you're modeling so much. Uh, there's a thoughtfulness that goes into what what your actions are going to do obviously that end state thinking allows you to visualize exactly what you would like to uh i, I don't know draw out of of these different kids i mean you sound like a very different teacher than a modern teacher hmm. you sound like i mean is is that a compliment i think it's a compliment I, yeah. you sound i i can tell you this i had tremendous teachers growing up I had tremendous parents growing up. I had neighbors who were mentoring. I had football coach who, coaches who mentored me throughout. You know, um, Joe Barantovich is a great example of that. He gave me my first job in teaching. He called me when I wasn't sure what I was doing in life. And he said, he was at Miami Southridge at the time. And he said, hey, I have, a, I have an English position open. You interested in it? Six months. 
out of the blue, changed my life forever. And it, and it put me in a, in an arena that I thought, this is where I'm meant to be. This is what I want to do. Um, but, but yeah, I think, I, I think the coaching background, the, the, the athletic background, uh, strong family background, I think all of those things contribute to what I do today and who I am today. Well, it's a good contribution. You and I went different ways. You, you're, you're now in the high school level. I'm in early childhood. I mean, I very, very much, my education now is all with kindergartners, uh, pre-K, even first and second graders. That's what happens. And look at us, two old guys yeah. doing this type of work. I, I don't think there's enough men who are teaching in the world, or in the United States, definitely. Um, do you agree? Without question, I think um, you know when I look at when I look at our district, uh, kind of that mid-management leadership team, it is predominantly females. Uh, when I when when you go in when I go to a literacy leads meeting for Orange County, oftentimes I'm one of two, maybe the the only male in a room of forty fifty educators, uh, and and it's it, it it's disappointing to me in for my gender it's disappointing to me uh for the kids because because i can see the difference it makes in a classroom and and i'm not saying we should be it should be all male teachers by any means but there needs to be that male presence there needs to be that male influence there needs to be that male perspective um i am unapologetically uh, heterosexual but i don't care about what my kids are doing or what they can, you know, where they're going. That That's their, you know, we, we basically stay in public education. We stay out of politics, sex, and religion. That's not our bailiwick. And, and I encourage students to explore and to experience and to, to learn as much as they can. And perhaps we should teach those things. But at this point, I think it's best that the public, in this climate we're in right now, it's best we stay out of it. But, but to simply grow as an individual, to simply be, to be aware of who you are, to your value in life and your contribution to your community. Um, I, I wrote a, a personal mission statement years ago and, and, it, and it, it just deals with being a positive member of our community. And, and I, here, here's my philosophy. Seven billion people in the world. There's more good people by far than there are bad. And that, that's, a, that, that's a true statement. I mean, getting back to the male teachers, there is a missing male perspective. And that's not saying anything about the wonderful women who are teachers. That's not saying anything about uh, anything other than the fact that I do believe personally teaching for me has been fulfilling. It has softened me. It has given me the ability to understand the world uh, from a completely different perspective than being a parent. Because being a parent is is partially being a teacher. Mm. But I don't really believe that you need parents in the classroom, not that role. What you really need is a, is a good teacher and a good mentor. And I think young men are falling behind. They're not as anxious to go into college. And I remember a time when you didn't need to go to college to become a teacher. And teachers were wonderful, and there were a lot of male teachers. Um, Andy, did you go to Glades Junior High School? No, I went well? to Riviera. You went to Riviera. So we didn't meet till we went to Southwest right. High School. 
but I can remember going to junior high school in the 70s and having an equal amount of mm -hmm. male and female teachers. I can remember at Southwest when we were in high school, an equal amount of male and female teachers. Mm -hmm. But I now go into these schools where I'm teaching and I go to various schools throughout Miami and Dade County, and it is extremely rare to find a man in any one of these classrooms. Mm -hmm. And I, 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 for one, would like to change that mm -hmm. in a way that's part of the reason why the podcast is what it is, but mostly because I feel that guys like you and I, we get a bad rap in the general sense based on our gender. But in reality, you know, the fact that we both had excellent family models and then in turn created excellent families ourselves, have, I think we have something to say. We hmm. shouldn't be quiet about it. Right. And, right. and it's, it's, it's not about hearkening back to the old days. Well, you know, in, in, Mark, in early America, the, the teachers were basically the old maids. They were the women who were not married, who became teachers for their life. And that's what they did. Um, and, you know, I, I think that legacy continues today with, with how teachers are being paid. We're not paid as professionals. We are paid as a, it's a supplementary income designed to have a breadwinner at home and then a teacher, and then you can make it through. Uh, only by the grace of God have I made it through to this point in my life. Um, but I, I, I don't see a foreseeable end to my career. I think it's going to go as long as I can go. And, and honestly, I don't want it to end at this point anytime soon, but but you're you're absolutely right. When we look at the those headline makers of disgruntled youth, they're primarily males. They're they're that left out. They're those ones in the middle that no one's really paying attention to, that no one has a connection to. And and every every child, at, particularly in the high school level, they need an adult who advocates for their future. They need someone who's personally connected with them. I floated the idea at my high school of making trading cards, as ridiculous as it sounds, but I want, I want a card for each child, and I want each teacher, each staff member to have a group of these cards of kids that they care about individually, and they talk to personally on a regular basis of what's, what are your challenges, what are your successes, where do you see yourself going, what's the roadblocks, how can I help? Um, That's amazing. Uh, you know, you know. Let me riff on that for a second. The, the idea of a one-on-one -on -one education is really where I'm at. Uh, I feel it's the most successful form of education, a tutor and a student. And that one-on-one -on -one education, uh, just you can't do it when you're teaching one-to-many. It, it doesn't fit the formula, which is why you know, parents' involvement in education has become so important, especially in the modern age, where they have to pick up that slack and become mm -hmm. these tutors. Not parents, they're, they're not, they don't, no one says that to them. No one says, oh, you're going to have kids, you're going to put your kids in school, and then you're going to become a supplementary tutor for that child for the rest of their lives. Right. That, that's just, it's not in the manual, it's not in the handbook. Where in reality, I think that what you're doing, your suggestion of bringing back that sense of urgency to that one-on-oneness mm -hmm. is, kids respond to that. I don't care what age you are, I don't care what type of child you are, if someone pays attention to you as an individual, then you learn, oh, my individualness is important. And then you get away from groups and identities 
that that choose to put you into a box because it's the kids that are not in a box that move on to that purposeful life you were talking about yeah. earlier but Can you, go, ahead, go ahead no go ahead well i i just want to give you an example of that i i've been i've been reading student writing over the weekend um these kids want to know how I feel about their writing. They want feedback. And that's what I'm going to give them. Every, everyone who wrote something gets the same amount of points. I don't really care. It's not the points that I'm after. What I'm after is I want that, that student to know that I care about their writing. I care about their thinking. I, I, I care about uh, their approach to academics, to, to life itself. And I, I, I want them to be able to frame those things in a way that that is appropriate. So all I'm doing is giving them comments and feedback and saying, yes, you did this assignment. Great job. But here's things we have to work on. Or here's some things I would change to make it better. Your choice. Do they, do, do they continue to write? Do they like writing? Do your students enjoy writing? Um, you know, we're in day seven right now, kind of a new group of kids. Uh, I think they're, they're going to enjoy it. I think they're going to find, uh, that, that the things we talk about apply to their lives or future lives. Uh, so, so I think it is, I, I think it adds value to their, to their lives. And I, and I think there's some real world application to it. Absolutely. You know, we talk about writing letters. We talk about journaling. We talk about, you know, how do we go about doing these things? What, why would I do these things? Uh, yeah, no, I mean, that's a great question. I mean, think about uh, most people do not think clearly. And part of that is because most of your thinking is done when you're talking. And that's one type of thinking, but that's not really uh, enough. You have to be able to write to think. And you have to have a relationship with your writing to therefore give those words meaning. And then you have to have a a a desire to write to explore it further so that that meaning then has value to you because something can mean something to you and be completely invaluable to you but making those three connections is a process and i don't think i'll give you an example uh, a better example through reading i'm not a big fan of teaching very very young children to decode letters and read mm -hmm. I think it's confusing for them, and they eventually will catch up. But I do think they need to love storytelling. Mm. So with the very, very young group that I was teaching, I would always tell stories. I would tell them the story, engage them in such a way that the story became meaningful. And then that encouragement over the years sprouted and became, well, I like stories. I really love listening to stories. Let me take a shot at this reading thing. And suddenly they became readers, but it was through the love of, of, of storytelling, mm -hmm. right? understanding that. I think that happens with writing as well. Mm. It, then it, there's, a, there's a pathway right. to take it through there. Do you agree? Without question. Um, and, and I feel like I am the one who needs to provide them the tools, the, the, the framework in which to effectively communicate those things in the written word. Um, you know, I, I have learned so much about uh, kind of the, the etymology of words, and I love that part of teaching new words or the morphology of words, how we change words with affixes and, and so on. 
uh, I'm, I'm a huge fan of being able to take an, you know, an adjective and use it as a different part of speech, uh, to use, utilize participa, participial phrases effectively to describe something that, that is going on, you know, and some of our kids do this naturally. They, and I think it's, it's, it's probably because they were read to because they do have an affinity for the stories. Uh, they do have a, a familiarity with, with the art of writing. And so they, they you know, I, I had several uh, first drafts that I, I read this weekend that I just said, excellent, keep writing, you know, write on. Um, and, and some who I just say, look, mechanically, you're, you're weak in this area. We, we, need to, we need to shore this up and that's okay. Um, you know, the, the, the other point I wanted to make about education, Mark, and, and we, we don't talk about this enough, is education is emotive. It's visceral. It, it, there's more to it than just the intellect. There's that emotional connection that we're making, that emotional investment. And, you know, teachers, after the hardest days, will sometimes sit in a room just smiling. A quiet room. We, we did it. It, it was a struggle, but we, we made it through. Uh, or conversely, there's times teachers will sit in their rooms and simply cry. Because it was so emotive because it, or well, the yeah. difficulty, or was it just yeah. to bring out something positive? Perhaps, perhaps we learned about the struggle of an individual kid, or, or perhaps a child had this epiphany, this awareness uh, for that, that you've been struggling to get to. But you, you see yes, it in a child, and, and you're always going to have that connection. And, and I always leave my students at the end of the year. I am always your teacher. We will always have had this experience. But this particular group will never, we will never have that dynamic again as a class. That will, we'll never be able to replicate this. So we never know in life when we're going to have those moments. Yeah, I'm struck by just how much you drew from your life in sports, your coaching, and you've brought it into the classroom in a, in a sensitive and mindful way. It's unbelievable to me. It's, it's so encouraging and so beautiful because what you're telling me is that you care. Hmm. It's the exact opposite of what the reputation of modern education is. That detachment, that intellect, that teaching to the test mentality, that so much. And it, it's just not present in our conversation. And it really, to be honest with you, it's not present in many of the teachers that I know. So why do you think the reputation is such? You know, I, I, I think there, there seems to be this, this thought out there that teachers simply want to work a minimum amount of time, have summers off, do their own thing. You know, it's this bohemian lifestyle that they're, they're not grounded individuals. Um, I, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to speculate into conspiracy theories, but there seems to be a, an outright. Uh, you know, this they abhor public education for whatever reason. We're we're pushing vouchers. We're pushing charter schools. We're pushing a lack of oversight um, instead of encouraging, like we do with students, more independence, more thought provoking. You know. 
I told you we weren't going to talk about politics, but, you know, right now we have an inverted balance of politicians telling educators what to do. Politicians need to learn from educators. It, it is, it's, in, it's completely backwards at this point. We should be, our, our policies should be developed at our great universities, those think tanks we have uh, for the future. And, and we need to vet those, those ideas and we need to put them into practice. But uh, there seems to be this distrust for what is taking place. This, I have never heard of a, I have never personally in my 21 years as a public school educator it witnessed a professional indoctrinating a student into some religious, political, or sexual orientation manner in any way. Now, do we read stories that might include some of these controversial topics? Without question. You can't get through Animal Farm. You can't read Brave New World without invoking some of these ideas. Um, so, you know, let's let's let our kids be thinkers. Let's let them work things out. Let's let them struggle with it and, and find what they feel is the best way through. But we can't do that without just allowing them to experience the world and, and these ideas uh, individually in, in a supportive yeah. environment. A absolutely. You make a, a, a couple of excellent points here. There's too many cooks spoiling the broth. There's too many, there's too many ideas being thrown in. And there really isn't enough um, independence sent to the educators. And, you know, I, I go back to, if we're going to reimagine a better educational system, we have to reimagine it by filling it with new people that have new ideas, with, uh, you know, uh, a balance of outside influences. And I do, th I do believe in experimentation. I, I think you know, the only way that you can say this modality works or this one doesn't is unless you have sort of a friendly competition between philosophical educational ideals. Mm -hmm. There's no such thing as one size fits all. There's just no way that you can have one way of, of uh, determining whether this is the best way to teach kids. I, I like a deconstructed method mm -hmm. where there's a lot of small schools with a lot of highly motivated individuals well-trained in the art of teaching a, a whole person and not just someone who's, who's cashing a check. I mean, I, I've never really met teachers that are phoning it in at, mm. at all. I, I think I agree with you very deeply that the reputation the public knows and what's actually happening in the classroom is very, very different. And I'm hoping a podcast like this will shed a little bit of light to it and, and let people but, know yeah. that. There's the controversy out there, the the proposal to put cameras in the classroom. Um, I'm I'm a part of the minority as an educator. I believe they belong there. I believe we should open up the classroom. I think there should be access to the classroom. I think there's protections for the teacher there. I think there's protections for the student there. Um, I, you know, I ask my students one of the questions I ask first day of school. Give me one word that describes school. A vast majority said boredom. And I, I applauded them. I said, excellent. When we are bored, when we are idle, 
if we allow our minds to think deeply, oftentimes that's when we're most creative. That's when we're most reflective. That's when that's when we can we can start to think about things in a different way. Um, the problem is too oftentimes when we're bored, we quickly distract ourselves with some 30 second video that's going to entertain me for a moment, take my mind off of those things. And, and those are the things I'm trying to weed out. I just I don't want them to have those distractions. I want them to have those times of idleness and, and introspective thought. I, I think there's a great value there and there's, there's a lot that can take place. Yeah, this is a great point. I mean, you and I grew up during a time when uh, there was no internet and when we were done with what we needed to do, we had to figure out what to do. And you couldn't call a friend because their phone wasn't with them. So what did we do? We ran down the street and went over to Miller Park mm-hmm. and there was always something going on there. If you couldn't get, if you weren't part of a pickup game and you know one of the areas that you were trying to work with was full, you'd find a bottle cap and a stick and a, somehow a baseball game would you know, become that. I do believe that through the act of uh, boredom comes that necessity for, I'm super happy with my kids. Uh, well, my, my girls have never said that they're bored because I also, I believe very much in range. I'm not sure. Let me explain that concept to you. And I want to get your insight on it. But I tend to think that for for kids, it's very good to explore a wide variety of things and not just try to become a prodigy at something. You know, when baseball season was done, you had to learn to play soccer. When soccer wasn't happening, you had a football game. And, you know, I was a tennis player, as you know, growing up. And uh, when tennis season was over, I didn't say, well, I'm just going to keep playing tennis. I went out and found a good basketball game or did something. And that, that range gives you the ability to, I think, learn intuitively in different domains. And that's where school doesn't do a good enough job of giving a broad range of interests that can be taught, that do have value. For example, the arts, not just literature, but, you know, I'm a music teacher. I mean, music, music doesn't happen until very late in, in style. What do you think about the idea of encouraging range versus uh, specialization in especially high school age kids? Yeah, I, I think it's a great question. And I think it is, we are in danger of, you know, that burnout of, of a child when we, we push them in one direction constantly. You know, I, I've, I was a head football coach up, into, uh, up until 2013. Uh, and I resigned that position for various reasons, but, but I found a conflict in my philosophy and, and how I was dealing with the kids because as a football coach, you go from preseason to in-season to off-season to summer training to, you know, and, and it just keeps going. Um, the other thing I found with the sport um, and I, don't get me wrong, I love the sport, but I don't know it's a, if it's in our best interest of all of our high school kids to be involved in it, is it is so adult-led. It is so micromanaged by the adults involved that the, the students have very little decision-making to make. Uh, we'll tell you what to eat, what time to wake up, what to wear, where to be, how to practice, you know, everything is there. You know, and I contrast that, you know, watching the World Cup uh, 
tomorrow morning's the final. And, and I've, I've gained, I've, I've been to two different World Cups, Mark. I've been to the one in Tokyo. I've been to the one in Berlin. And what I found in the game of soccer, and, and by the way, I have that book recently that uh, how soccer explains uh, our global existence or something, but I can't wait to read that. But, but what I find with <laughs> soccer is, is there's so much that is player-led, that is player-communicated, that is just the flow of the game. It just happens. It, it, there's, it's not choreographed. Uh, you have your set pieces, but you don't have first down, get in this formation and run this play. Defense, by the way, if you're not aligned to it this way, then we have, a, you know, th- that whole strategy thing is, is it's much more fluid. And, and I find that, I find that in the arts, I, I, you know, I played the cello when I was younger and, and I, I took part in the, the performing arts and, and, and there is so much value there in, in really having those multiple experiences and those varied experiences that allow you to appreciate the discipline, the, the, the passion, the, the art that's being uh, performed that, you know, when I see a cellist today, by the way, over the summer, I saw a violinist at the Acropolis uh, Outdoor Amphitheater in Greece, uh, you know, well-known German virtuoso. And it was just incredible to see the height of that art, you know, uh, practiced. Um, but kids, our, our kids need to have those varied experiences because we don't know where that passion is going to click or that that just that innate ability to do something. And so if we allow them to dabble here and dabble there and experience it, particularly at the, at the elementary age and the middle school age, but at no time, at no time should a child uh, be, you know, rigidly restricted to you're a ballerina and that's what you do. <laughs> you know, you're a water polo player and we're doing it year round. We're going to be travel team. We're doing, you know, that's more of an adult perspective. That's not the child's perspective. That's not necessarily a child's desire. Selfishly, I think selfishly in a lot of ways, it's that adult behind the child saying, you're going to save me money or make me money one day. And that's not what it's all about. Yeah, definitely. The the parent uh, coach, the parent uh, involvement in the emotional investment of the the child's uh, future is difficult to reconcile. I think you make an, another really great point, and maybe you can you can break that down a little bit more for me, which is you talk about student-led activities, and you talk about you know adult-led activities. What's a really good example of a student-led activity where, where you see uh, your idea of improvisation, your idea of exploration playing out? Well, you know, I think, I think in, in a typical uh, ELA classroom, one of the things we have to do as educators is slow down, present the text to the students, and give them an opportunity amongst themselves to talk about the impact of that text. Now, I try to provide them the tools. You know, we, we look for various figurative language. We look at word choice. We look at tone. We look at mood. You know, we have all these different uh, different ways of looking at a piece of literature. But I think that articulation and the opportunity to bounce ideas off of a cohort is invaluable. And, and so what I need to do is I need to teach them the framework or the questions to ask, perhaps, of your, of your classmate 
but value that input from your classmates. You, we, I think they find clarity when they're talking with someone of their own age about it and, and a way of looking at a theme, the way of looking at, uh, you know, a particular uh, element of plot that I can't, I can't tell them. I can present it to them, but it, it never, it, I don't think it's actually embraced until they, they, they have an opportunity to interact with that content themselves. So I, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of that gradual release process where, you know, I'm doing it, we're doing it, now you're doing it, and I am just there for feedback. What's well, good adult modeling, I mean, in the real world, that's kind of the way things are, is, you know, no one, no one person is constantly telling you what to do. You're interchanging these ideas. I like that it's Socratic. I mean, you're, you're describing a, virtually a seminar where uh, I'll tell you a story about my daughter, Annabella. She's uh, 17, and over the summer, she won an award to uh, go to St. John's uh, University, which is out in Annapolis. Yeah. It was originally, I think, uh, King William's University. It was, it's the oldest school alive, and, and everything that they do is based on classic books, and everything they do is based on seminar. In fact, their professors are called tutors. And uh, she went for a week long, um, basically living the life of a college student, but, but having these very important discussions about classical literature with. And what, the amazing thing I found was she wasn't the only one. There was room of 30 kids that were extremely like-minded, which means somewhere in the world, we are producing these type of students. You know, and I don't know what the formula is. Is it a combination of great family life like we had? Is it a combination of uh, really rigorous academic pursuit during your times? Is it that you had a lot of friends? Did you talk around the dinner table? But I can tell you that for me, as I, as I, as I talked to her about, there was such diversity in, in lives and families. There was no real easy formula to find. But there has to be a formula. Don't you agree? There has to be some way to produce this. You know, I, I, I think genetics play a part in it. Honestly, I think, I think some of us are predisposed to various academic pursuits. I don't, so I, I think there is some natural inclination. Um, that being said, I think the, where there is desire, there is ability. And I think we oftentimes we have that untapped ability that if we ever actually tried to master a particular skill or a particular uh, discipline, I think we could do those things. I think through our own strength. Um, so yeah, the, the formula, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm always interested when I talk to, to kids, I, I want to know, tell me about your parents. Tell me about your siblings. Tell me, tell me what life is like outside of school. Tell me what, you know, what your dreams are. Tell me, tell me what, what you've struggled with. And, and, and so I, I think there's so many variables that go into it that, um, you know, Somewhere ages and ages hence, I shall be telling this with a sigh. Two roads diverged through a yellow wood, and I, I took the one less travel by. And, and I think that's where we want to get our kids to. Do you use poetry in, in, in your classroom? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's, Huge that's the beautiful thing, isn't it? I mean, yeah, that, that's word art. 
you know, that, that is, uh, and, and there's no license. There's no, you know, we, we try to put structure to it. We try to label it and we try to put it in its category, but, you know, I think, um, I think it, it's what speaks to us. It, it, it's what makes connections with our soul. You know, I, I, I read at, at this stage of life, I, I love uh, the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. And, oh, uh, yeah, that's one of my favorites. So I should have been a pair of ragged claws scuttling along the floors of silent seas. Just right. Just the sounds and the combination of sounds speak to us. Right. And so, yeah, that. There, there's something I, I always I always approach those pieces as what can I tell you about this? You know, I mean, just experience it. You know, just try to let's see if we can. It, it's like looking at a masterpiece and, and and trying to discern its flaws or weaknesses. Why not look at it holistically and enjoy it? Allow it to feed our soul. Yeah, you are a true. Uh professor of literature i mean when you really uh-huh. when you when you able to draw that and Mark, let me, let me you know uh, here, here's one of my 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 new uh, initiatives you talk about professor i think the title of teacher needs to be honorific i think we need to start addressing teachers as teacher teacher disney teacher sodavia that to me now you think about japan the the Japanese how they approach a sensei, they're they're honored, they are revered, they're they're respected. I think teaching needs that same sort of emphasis, and I don't think we're going to get there until we adopt the title. And because language tells starts to indicate the importance of that position when when you are addressed that way. And and when we think about all the other professions that have titles that teachers have made possible, why would we not use that title for a teacher? Why wouldn't we embrace that? I love that. I mean, this is absolutely, you're speaking truth now that, you know, the, it goes hand in hand with the changing of mindset generally of the story of what it is to become a teacher. I mean, you have to tell a better story of what it is to become a teacher and give the excellence of it, it's due. You know, uh, we've heard the bad side of the story. We're kind of stuck now in a political debate about what's going to happen with the teachers or what's happening with education. But it really should be a cultural one. It should be one exactly what you're talking about right. and honorific. Um, so much formality has been lost in, right. in, in generally just how we address each other. And, you know, we used to put on uniforms when we went out in public. And what I mean by that is good manners, your, you know, the ability to listen, the, you know, bring up topics that are, that are not controversial and, you know, not, not incite a riot. <laughs> All these things were things that we had that somehow have been lost along the way. Do you know, I want to, I want to talk to you real quickly. Um, in junior high school, I had a wonderful teacher, Mr. Tui, and he had a, a class called Rock Poetry. And it was basically where we dissected the lyrics to, mm. at that time, at that, at that time, folk songs, really. A lot of Bob Dylan, a lot of, you know, Fleetwood Mac was around at that time, you know, whoever. Mm-hmm. And it was a way to get us interested in poetry. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if, you know, the fact that hip-hop and, and so much of that culture 
brought along some of the teachers that are now teaching, you know, young teachers in their 30s and so on. They grew up on a hip-hop culture. Um, do you ever use that as a vehicle, or do you stick to more classic type of I, poems? Yeah, I, first thing I would tell you is I, I play music when my students enter the room every day. I play music when they exit the room. So they have that that background. They they have that welcoming and they have that departure music that, that is part of the norm. Uh, I've done units on uh, song lyrics. I, I love doing it. Uh, you won't be surprised at this. I, I did uh, two weeks of U2 lyrics uh, because I, I find that, that what Bono has written to be so rich and, and to be so uh, pertaining to our world today, you know, the God I believe in doesn't, isn't short of cash, mister. You know, that sort of thing that, that, right. that, really, that really grabs me. And, and, and I'm hoping, you know, he, there was a song from uh, one of their later albums, Yahweh, you know, and, and, you know, you talk about strength there. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I try to, I, I clearly draw, try to draw with, with some of the more popular things today that I cannot really relate to all the time. Although I did go to a sublime concert the other day and I had a blast, but um, you know, some of the newer, some of the newer music is just not my, my, my thing. And, and I'm unapologetic. You know, I, I tell the kids about that. I can't relate to some of the things they listen to, but I, I can also remember having a, a spirited debate in a language and lit class about the validity of Post Malone's art. Is he commercial or is he artistic? And and it was a, it was a healthy conversation. I, I can remember um, Childish Gambino came out with uh, his song about America uh, and the strength of those lyrics and and the accompanied graphics that went with it was really unsettling and and really thought provoking. Uh, so so music has a place in my classroom. Music is is honored in my classroom, and and music is a source of inspiration and a, and a and an opportunity for us to think. This is lovely. This is absolutely uh, a necessary part of that uh, the rite of passage that kids go through. You have your own music. You have your own. You have the soundtrack of your life. I sure. mean, it's a cliche for a reason, and it's true. And it, I, you're right; it is a way in, but it's also a way to help them discover something that might have been uh, passed over in their lives. Mm. You know, a lot of kids, the classics are passed over. U2 is passed over, um, and even Childish Gambino <laughs> at this point might be mm. a little bit too old for for something that that five years ago meant something. Well, what are the I, questions? You know, I, I told you about the, the question about uh, how do you describe school in one word? Mm -hmm. uh, another question on that opening question, a student survey, as I call it, was if you could have lunch with one person in, throughout history, who would it be and why? Just sit down and talk with someone. And, you know, invariably, I get Taylor Swift. I get Tyler, the creator. I get, you know, someone topical, which, okay, I appreciate that. That's, that's your gig. That's what you want to go after. Good. But then I also get the ones who say Martin Luther King or, you know, uh, Socrates, you know, I, I, you know, and, and so it gives me a perspective on that child without question.
Yeah, I mean, it says something to that communication says something. Who would you who would you like to have lunch with? Um, well, I, I think my first choice would be Jesus, because I want the truth. I, w- I really want to know what's going on here. Um, but, um, you know, I, I have a top five. I, I'd, I'd love to talk with Nelson Mandela. Uh, I think his story is amazing. Certainly Martin Luther King would be up in there. Abraham Lincoln. What what he went through, I, I would love to really figure out all those sort of things. And then I, I think selfishly, uh, John F. Kennedy. I think John F. Kennedy was it, it was is so intriguing to me his, the life he led and, and the tragic end. Um, so much power, so much charisma, uh, so much you know. Just you know, honestly, I think there, there's some people on the world stage now that remind me of him that don't have the chance he had because of our media scrutiny. Uh, and I wish, I wish we could simplify that process a bit. Hey, those are great choices. That says something about the type of person that you are. Definitely. This has been the, this has been a great conversation. I, I would love to do this again with you. Uh, are you up for that? Absolutely. And, and I really want to get into that, the literacy piece, because I find that so important. And and I really believe that, you know, you, you talked about the letter impact. Letters are so important. And then how we combine those letters to make sounds. And then how we use those sounds to come together to form words. And the ability to take our, our passive vocabulary into an active vocabulary. And, and, and the prosody and the fluency of the language is, is really uh, something that I'm, I'm studying now. I believe in structured literacy. I believe in the freedom of literacy, but I also believe there's a, there's you really need to systematically and explicitly teach our, our kids those tools so they can apply them themselves. How did you get into that? Let's take a moment. How did you get into the structured literacy? Um, honestly, I, I had I had a student ten years ago or so, a dyslexic student, um, that I, I really cared. I really wanted to reach that student. And, and I was, I was given so many roadblocks, so many challenges through the bureaucracy of public education, you know, fill out this form, send this child here, this counselor would deal with it. And, and I wanted to deal with the child. So it caused me to step back and say, what can I do? First of all, what is dyslexia? How does it work? And then what can I do better to meet the needs of that, of that particular student? And w- what I've learned is almost 20% of our, of our students have some level of dyslexia. And so reading, decoding text is not as easy as we make it sound. And there are roadblocks. And there, um, you know, our brains make these connections between the letters and those words we know. And the, they create graphics of the, our brain creates a graphic of that word. And that's how we become much more fluent in our reading. But if we don't have those connections, what do we do? How do we approach that? And I, you know, dyslexia has its challenges, but it also has its strengths as well. But we, the, those students are much more verbal. Those students are, are much more uh, thoughtful in, in some of their responses. So we, we have to marry those two and find that, that balance where they can have equal footing and have equal access to, to all of the texts we're, we're dealing with in an ELA classroom. And so Technology has certainly helped that in terms of audiobooks and 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 uh, you know some of these writing programs that allow us to work online. You know, I, I'm a big believer of a pen and paper put 
you know, enhance learning. But I also recognize those students that need that computer assistant aid as well. And I want them to have that because it, it helps to fill that gap. Um, so, you know, you get back to that path. There's not that one learning style that's going to fit all. I can't, I, I can't make that fit. I don't want to make that fit. I want to find the fit for that student. That's a noble pursuit and not, not just that, but, uh, you know, in an earlier podcast, I spoke with Jamie York. He's a, he's a math uh, missionary, does a great job with uh, teaching mathematics. And he talks a little bit about math trauma and how that affects learning going forward. But what you've just described is a little bit of a population. There's a student population that have that same type of trauma, but it's attached to maybe reading aloud, maybe reading silently. It's attached to literature. And there has to be an advocate for them to, to help break that so that they can move into uh, not just their own strengths through adjustment, but by actually being able to overcome it through a technical mm. learning. Mm -hmm. It's a technical type of learning. So right. I think I understand what you're talking about, applying technique to something. Right. And, and I think, you know, when getting through the pandemic, I think one of the, the great, something we're, we don't talk about from the pandemic is so many students learned how they learn because we were trying to do this thing remotely and they realized that they needed more than that. And they needed that physical connection. They needed that proximity. They needed that constant uh, uh, monitoring and compliant and, and feedback to be able to be successful step by step. Now, conversely, we found a, a population of students that gravitated towards virtual learning and they embraced it and they prefer it. And, and, and I say, right on, let's, let's take these things. I think the other thing that came out of the pandemic from, from my personal perspective is when we were all masked, we became more reliant on the spoken word. We couldn't rely on facial expressions. We became more reliant on proper pronunciation and clarity of speech because of the muffled sounds that were coming from those masks. So I, you know, in, in some ways, you know, we teach the, the sounds of letters and morphemes by watching the mouth, how we move the mouth. By taking that away, it, it really increases our other senses to, to really have that thorough communication. So in some ways, we, we might want to go back to that from time to time and say, let's cover our mouths and face and, and see if we can determine the tone, the intonations, the pronunciation of, of, of one's speech. Yeah, this is a great point that lis listening is an activity. You have to learn how to listen. Mm. And uh, obviously, you you really develop that in early childhood through music education. That's part of what we're bringing mm. with our foundation to teaching uh, young kids how to actively listen. And that it does help performance in, in upper grades as you go on because you're able to, you know, discern sounds from another and also you're being taught to pay attention. I think the other point you're making is if, if I don't have lip reading, I can't, I can't let my eyes wander. I, I, you know, there's, there's a distraction that might happen. Suddenly everyone needed to communicate on it a little bit deeper, a little bit harder. And you make a, you make a good point for the spoken language. Well, you know, literacy, 
when our focus on literacy is reading, writing, speaking, and listening. And I, I make it a point in my classroom not to talk about don't do this, don't do that, but do this. Be an active listener. Uh, if you need to take notes to stay engaged, let's write, let's take notes. If you need to doodle to stay engaged, let's doodle. If you need to stand up to stay engaged, let's stand up. But let's let's find that 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 medium that allows us to be an active listener because listening is a skill. And so often we're simply listening for to to determine what our response is going to be. We're not processing that information. Or we spend so much time thinking about the the appearance of the source of that information that we're not dealing with what the content of that information is. And so we have to somewhat separate ourselves. No, you, you, that's great because I'll take it one step further. People are actively thinking about what they're going to say. It's not very thoughtful. It's said. And now we're stuck in a situation where you have to defend that thought. And I think defending your thought uh, that you just thought of a few minutes to the end because you said it and now identify with it is an obstacle to discussion. Mm. And you have to allow yeah, you got to let uh, a lot of these ideas, uh, the first thing that comes out of your mouth isn't the most important thing. In fact, the first thing you listen to and take that breath and, and engage thoughtfully and mindfully with, that, and then you talk about it, I mean, you can probably give a little more merit to that and hold on to that and defend that a little bit stronger. But I, uh, I wonder how much you're also teaching debate when you're teaching in your yeah. class. Are you doing that at all? Do you talk I, a little I, bit about that? Debate is a great tool in, in, a, in a language classroom because debate allows us to clearly identify the pros and the cons and, and allows us to, we think almost as a propagandist would think about in a debate uh, setting. You know, one of my favorite things to do is to choose a topic, separate the class pros and cons, and then require them to argue the opposite side, to see it from the opposite perspective. Uh, I think there's so much growth that takes place there. And, uh, and, and, and that civil discourse is so important. And the voice of the opposition is important. We need to listen. We need to understand it. Uh, I took a cybersecurity course over the summer just for fun. And it, it taught me about, uh, you know, kind of the, the, the perspective of the adversary and what, you know, what their, how their approach to cybersecurity is very different from those who are trying to secure our, our information and our communication. Um, and so I think, I think taking that position becomes, that persona becomes very healthy for us in a, in a, in a controlled setting. And we need to be able to accept that, that opposing view. Uh, civilly. Absolutely. That's, that's very, very difficult today. Uh, so much of what a person believes and is being said, and I'm talking about adults now, not kids, because it's pushed down as it's being modeled. There's an awful lot of people that hold on very tightly to an idea, and that ideology then becomes something that is dangerous to them, because it no longer allows them to see what the other side is saying, what another side is saying. 
Uh, I do, I've always taught and I always believe that both sides of the argument need to be equally understood and that the only way you can understand it is to be able to speak it and defend it from the other side. Steel man that argument and somehow really, uh, I'm not sure that that is something that a generation of adults are capable of doing, but I see it more and more in this new generation of children, these high school kids. I see them being more tolerant of opposing ideas. I see them being more tolerant of something that makes them uncomfortable, uh, just understanding that, hey, just because you're uncomfortable doesn't mean that it's right or wrong. It's something you get to work through uh, on your own. Mark, I'm, this I'm, is a very... I'm hopeful for that new generation. Uh, I, I, I think there's a lot of talented, thoughtful, uh, care, caring teenagers out there. And, and I think we just need to nurture them to the point where they can take the reins of this thing and take it in the right direction. I think, I think that mob mentality is very dangerous. And when, when we all simply are uh, combining forces simply on this emotional whim, because it's easier, because we're not comfortable perhaps with the who we are or who are our value as an individual, I think those things become very dangerous. And I've been in situations where that mob is about to explode and it is, it's an it's an unpredictable and it's a precarious situation to be in. And so we need to deal with, with our children as individuals and empower them as individuals. Well, you're doing an absolute stellar job at, at that right now. You're, it, it's unbelievable to me that more and more, uh, you, that you don't motivate and inspire more and more generation of these kids that you're teaching to become teachers themselves, especially the boys. Because you're doing it in such a thoughtful and beautiful way that uh, I can't imagine not following you in those footsteps. Uh, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. I always ask my guests whenever possible to return because I, I love this discussion. I believe that we can have another equally meaningful one and not uh, replicate what we've discussed today. But is there anything you want to leave me with? Is there any teaser you want to leave me with? Thoughts uh, for the next one? Uh. You know, I, I'm very optimistic for our future. I really, I believe in, in humankind. I believe in the in the overall goodness of humankind. And I think, I think we need to stop living in fear. I think, I think each of us need to stop thinking about what changes need to be happening in the world and how we can change as individuals. And I think that, ultimately will bring about change. I think we need to walk in our neighborhoods. We need to say hello to people we don't know. We need to be courteous. We need to be kind to people. And, and, and think about the greater good. I like the world that you create for us. Uh, I'm optimistic about the future as well. Hey, listen, hang on a second. I'm going to stop the recording, but I really want to... Uh, chat with you for a bit when we're done. And I want to say it has been a pleasure to speak with you. Take care of yourself. Thank you, Mark. All right. I stopped it there. That was great.